0: So, All right, if you have your Bibles, stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, Vivian's going to lead us in the reading.
1: Today's scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and the reading will also be on the screen behind me. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. You can be seated. Well, hey, if you're new, really um, thankful that you're here with us, especially on this holiday weekend. Um, We are kicking off a new series um, called Portraits of the Kingdom, and we are going to study uh, different parables of Jesus. And uh, one of the really exciting things is how we're incorporating within this series, uh, we have a beautiful art community here at the Parks Church, particularly like like per capita, we have just amazing number of, of artists here at the Parks Church. And so um, our elders, uh, we, we really thought, okay, how do we uh, incorporate more people uh, in serving the body and loving the body partic- through their particular gifts and in ways like that? And, and in this portraits uh, uh, series, um, engaging the the artist community and there are many artists in this community that that we don't know about and so maybe this will even provoke some conversations through that um some of our artists have actually painted paintings so um this is from covenant partner vicky sailor she did this in the 9 a.m service um I'm just kidding. I'm just, some of you who know paint are like, no, she did. She actually worked on this for a long time when we knew we were going to be doing this series. And just an incredible piece of art that I hope you, you come and you appreciate the portrait and, and look at it. And so we're so thankful for her gift being able to be on display here to evoke our imagination toward what the word of God is saying. And that is one of the beautiful things about the parables. The parables, um, Jesus was a master teacher in an orally-driven society. And what I mean by that is the way that they taught. Rabbis in that time, rabbis like Jesus, Jewish rabbis, would teach uh, in these stories or in these things called parables. And Jesus was no different. However, the parables that Jesus taught were eternally different. And so as we begin this 11-week series wading through the parables of Jesus, we had better understand what parables actually are at the very beginning. Now, how many of you grew up, like I did, going to Sunday school, and in your Sunday school class, and mine was baby blue. They had a baby blue felt board. Anybody else? Flannel graph also? Know, yeah, all right. Okay, I see, I see all of you with your Sunday school badges. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> If you don't know what they are, no big deal. And here's what they are. They are flannel-covered boards. And what people would do in these classes, typically in Sunday school classes, is they put these uh, figures that they would put on there, you know, like, okay, this represents Moses and this represents this person, that person. Well, a lot of times they would teach these parables on the flannel graph, like parables like the Good Samaritan. You know, and the one character who was always Moses. You're like, wait, was that was Moses last week? Is Abraham this week? And some other dude this. You know, it's just like always confusing to me. Um, But they would make these stories uh, come to life, if you will. And uh, what I hope the Holy Spirit does is he 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 makes these parables come to life again. Because what can happen is these can be turned into like fables. Parables are not fables. They're not these uh, trite little simple stories that we just go, okay, conclusion is here and we can draw this. Now, parables, um, they used simple language. You look at almost any parable that we're going to walk through, Jesus in his teaching of parables used pretty simple language that everybody could understand intellectually. He would use relatively um, easy or cultural examples to illustrate a point. However, let's, let's understand that the understanding of the parables was not so easy. The understanding of what Jesus was actually saying wasn't that easy to grasp. You say, Kyle, how do you know that? Well, oftentimes after Jesus would teach a parable, his disciples or his closest followers would come to him and be like, hey, we didn't say this in public, but uh, what does that mean? You know, or he'd say things like, if you have ears to hear, let him hear, right? And everybody's like, We got ears on the side of our head. Our eardrums reverberated. Didn't we just hear? And Jesus is like, no. So here's the warning, even as we get into a series like this with familiar stories or parables, is that we'll hear them, we'll nod our heads to them. Maybe we'll even hear intriguing things that were different than what we learned on the flannel graph, possibly. But we won't really hear them. What Jesus was saying when he goes, let he or she who has ears to hear is not just these things on the side of our head, but let your heart hear them in such a way that you understand them that it reorients or reshapes your whole entire life. That's how you'll know you'll hear a parable in the way Jesus is teaching it. But if you just hear them for more intellectual knowledge, if you even understand the main point and main idea without it actually transforming your life, let me tell you, you haven't actually heard what Jesus is saying. You see, the parables are very interesting in how Jesus teaches with them. The the word parable in the Greek, right, which is what our New Testament was written in, the word parable means to cast alongside. So these are are stories or illustrations that Jesus casts alongside something. And so if I could get a little little nerdy here with you, these are really comparative uh, analogies, and what Jesus is comparing typically is he's comparing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. He'll go he'll say things like the kingdom of God is like dot 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 in opening a parable oftentimes. He's comparing what the old way is with the new way. That's what we're going to talk about. That's the parable we're looking at this morning. And so it's comparing these two things so that we get a glimpse at the ethic. We get a glimpse of the kingdom of God in a new and fresh way. These are not just stories that we just draw simple conclusions from. This is what God is doing. This is what God's heart is like. And this is how he's moving and how we participate in our lives. But I've got to be honest with you. The parables will be understood by some and they will not be understood by others. Some of you will have ears to hear and ears to hear. Others of you will only have ears to hear. The parables of Jesus are not just meant to reveal his kingdom in all its power and glory. Something that we'll see as we go through this parable series is it's also meant to conceal his kingdom. It doesn't just reveal what the kingdom of God and goes, hey, take it or leave it. It's also meant to conceal. So, if ever at a moment you're like, this kind of way, this kind of ethic, this kind of understanding doesn't make sense to me. It is so foreign, it's so outside of my understanding. Listen, it might be good point for you in that moment to pause to go, Lord, do I have ears to hear? Do I have eyes to see you rightly? Because the conflict we're in the middle, and I hope you leave your Bible open to Luke chapter 5, here with these religious leaders, are going to highlight a group who do not have ears to hear. They're going to hear a parable, but they're not going to hear the parable. Luke chapter 5 uh, begins Jesus' earthly ministry. He's just come out, obviously, Luke chapter 4 is where uh, Jesus is, is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And he defeats Satan in, in that moment, right, sends him away and enters into his earthly ministry. And at the end of chapter 5, Jesus, there's a question by the Pharisees raised to Jesus. Because one of the things we have to do in, in, in teaching the parables, we have to get in the context. We have to get into the background of what's actually going on that provokes this, this story or illustration from Jesus, And so the question in Luke chapter 5, verse 33, from the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the day, they said to him, the disciples of John fast, so that's John the Baptist, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, your disciples, eat and drink. What? What? And Jesus then, taking that question on fasting, says this in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, I want to, make the, I want to be as clear as I can on the point of this parable up front. And then we'll kind of unpack it and explain it through through Luke 5. The point of this parable is not, in fact, about wine or about cloth. It is about Jesus, okay? It is about Jesus' parable. It's illuminating who Jesus is. And who Jesus is revealing himself to be in this moment is the bridegroom. That's a weird term for us. We don't use it. Another word would be groom, right? You have a groom and you have a bride. He is the groom, And so here's what Jesus is saying. The bridegroom is here, and he is ushering in a newness that can't be contained by the old framework. That's what Jesus is saying and what he's going to unpack in this parable. That the bridegroom is here, and he is bringing about a newness that can't be contained in the old framework. So let's let's break this down through through the text. Why is it a big deal that Jesus just said, hey, the bridegroom's here? Because he's pointing at himself when he's saying that, by the way. In the Old Testament, which the Pharisees were the like religious elite, they knew their Old Testament, how God related to his people Israel was through this idea of a, bro- of a groom and a bride relationship, a-, a bridegroom and a bride. And so God would be seen as the bridegroom, and Israel would have been seen as the bride. Okay, And there's this relationship there. And so Jesus, imagine this, with the religious elite who know their Old Testament very, very well, he ro- rolls up and he goes, hey, there's no fasting When the bridegroom is here, never once in the Old Testament did the bridegroom, was the bridegroom associated with the Messiah. And so what Jesus just said in this moment is, I'm God and I'm here. You talk about making some waves, but these aren't the first waves that Jesus has made, Luke 5. Luke chapter 5, and this is where we got to get in the context. Luke chapter 5 begins Jesus' earthly ministry with Jesus calling his first disciples, Andrew and Peter. These ordinary fishermen who are out on the sea, Jesus goes to them and seeks, and Jesus, this rabbi, calling these ordinary men. And he goes, Hey guys, come follow me, and I'm gonna make you fisher of men. You don't think that got the religious elite's attention? Going, who is this guy calling ordinary guys fishermen to follow him and then telling them that he's going to make them fishers of men, right? Another illustration, they're probably like, what are you talking about, right? They'll get it. Oh, but it doesn't stop there in Luke chapter 5 because from there, uh, Jesus, look in your Bible, Jesus goes and he, he heals a leper. And he doesn't just heal the leper, but look at this. and This is verse 12 through uh, Verse 16. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will, I will, I will heal you. Be clean. Hold on. If another person touches a leper who is unclean, what happens to that other person? It makes them unclean. But what Jesus is doing here is he's totally flipping the script and going, listen, no, there's a new season, there's a new day. The bridegroom is here where I enter into the unclean and I make the unclean clean. And the religious leaders are like, we don't have a compartment for that. Like, we stay away from those lepers, right? Because they make us unclean. So we're over here running, and Jesus, you're running to them. Oh, he ain't done. And then he heals the paralytic, verses 17 all the way through 26. And here's the story with the paralytic is Jesus comes up to this this person who cannot walk and the first thing out of Jesus' mouth to this paralytic is not be healed, but it's a deeper healing. Jesus goes, your sins are forgiven. What? Religious, there's like, there's only one person who can forgive sins. Keep going with that thought. God himself. And Jesus is like, the bridegroom's here. God is here. I have the authority to say, your sins are forgiven. And here is also what I have the authority. Take up your mat and walk. Be healed. But he's not done. Keep going in Luke 5. I love this chapter. He's not done calling people in in this time. He doesn't just go to ordinary fishermen. He doesn't, he's not out at the sea. He's actually at the tax collector's booth, okay? Think like, uh, Taliban, uh, just like whatever you would kind of compartmentalize as just like, whoa, that is like, you're going to where you're talking to who you're, you're, you're asking who to follow you. He goes to Levi, this tax collector who scams everybody and everybody hates and everybody doesn't want to associate with. And he looks at Matt and he's Levi, also known as Matthew. He looks at him and he says, Hey, follow me. Imagine the religious leaders, the Pharisees, peering into all of these different movements of Jesus, and they're going, what is he doing? He's healing, he's forgiving sin, he's calling the ordinary. Now he's calling the absolute worst of worst of sinners to follow him. And Levi responds, and it says in verse 28, Levi, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And then Levi does what Levi knows to do when he feels really good and excitement in this new life. He throws a party. We haven't got to the parable yet. He throws a party. And this is what he says in verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Now others, you can imagine who hangs out with Levi, Right? But the Pharisees, it's interesting, the Pharisees are close to this, the religious leaders are close enough to this that they can see what's going on. And so the first question that the Pharisees asked Jesus isn't about fasting that I just read, it's this one right here. He says in verse 30, why do you, this is from the religious leaders to Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? To which I wish Jesus would have been snarky and would have said, because I don't want to eat alone, okay? Right? Because you're all in that camp of sinners, Right? but he doesn't. He answers much more eloquently as the son of God. This is what he says. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The bridegroom is here. It's a new season. It's a new day. The clean, God himself will show up and make the unclean clean. Here's who I have come for. I have come for those who understand and recognize that they have a problem and the problem is not found, the solution is not found in of themselves, it's found outside of themselves, in me. Religious leaders, you're well. (laughs) You're healthy. I didn't come for you. Now they're not. He said, I come for the sick. Jesus would double down on this. He'd say, here's who I've come for. I've come for the broken in spirit, the poor in spirit. I've come for those who realize they're lost. I've come for those who are wondering, not. Jesus goes, I haven't come for those who think they're well, who think they're okay. And this is where this, that's the background that we jump into this parable of a new cloth and a new wine. That's the background. And most scholars believe that that the question about fasting happened simultaneously while Jesus and his disciples were feasting with Levi, So imagine you've got the group of religious leaders who are fasting, not eating, looking into the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself going, why do you get to eat and we have to fast? Why aren't your disciples doing what we do? Because what we do is right. This is what pleases God and what you guys are doing doesn't please God. And Jesus goes, who said? You see, Jesus is exposing them that they have had a fatal flaw in understanding, that they are missing a pivotal, and and this is a pivotal question we even have to ask ourselves to this day. Not what time is it, that's not the most important question. The most important question I think we could ask that Jesus is illuminating here that the Pharisees miss is, when are we? When are we in the time of history, in the time of salvation? For the the Pharisees, what they missed is that the Savior, the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament cast the shadows to, is now fulfilled, and the guy is standing right before them. And what Jesus says to them is it's not time to fast, it's time to feast. Salvation is here. God himself is here. The Messiah is here. But the Pharisees, the religious, didn't have categories for someone who would do the things that Jesus would be doing. They didn't have categories for a new structure in a new way. And what Jesus is saying to them and to us this morning is that he brings a newness of life that is so new that it cannot be housed in old categories, in old frameworks, in old structures. Those things cannot accommodate the newness of life that Jesus brings. So what specifically is new about Jesus? What is so new that is being highlighted in the scriptures? Well, the first thing is this, and it's evidenced by Jesus talking to the Pharisees about the fast. The first thing, you see, fasting was commanded one day a year for Israel, the day of atonement. That's the one time the Lord commanded the fast. However, the Pharisees, the religious elite, had picked it up, and they fast at minimum twice a week to show their devotion to God. Now, it was a lot of external ceremony, okay? And Jesus is highlighting this, but notice he's not, he's not just discrediting them at fasting. John's disciples were fasting and he didn't actually come against them. John's disciples, they were fasting for the repentance of sins that John was pointing them toward. But notice John the Baptist, the forerunner to Christ, was pointing at Jesus going, he's the Messiah, So in their fasting, in their repentance, they were pointed to Jesus. The Pharisees, in their fasting, they were pointed not to God, not to Yahweh, not to seeking the true Messiah. They were pointed to themselves. You say, Kyle, how do you know that? Well, you know that because they miss the Messiah standing right in front of them. You know that because they don't have ears to hear when Jesus tells them the things like he's going to tell us in these parables. They can't hear it. There's no framework for that. And Jesus is going, the bridegroom is here, and I'm ushering in a newness, and your old structures cannot house it. Your structure for fasting is all about mourning. But you have to understand that this is a wedding. It is not time for mourning. You see, the gospel, the gospel infuses the lives of those who trust in Jesus with a sense and a deep-seated joy that only the Holy Spirit can bring about. Not religious observances, not old structures of framework, not traditions. And listen, I'm going to talk more about those coming up. But what had happened with with the Pharisees is that their fasting had become, or their practices had become, a cornerstone for their belief. Their traditions were their cornerstone. We have one cornerstone. His name is Jesus But when we begin to build our faith upon traditions and religion and ways of doing things, listen, traditions which are good, right? right, the, The things that we do that are repetitive, those are okay. But the moment they become, we become married to those, they become idols. The moment those become our cornerstone and we begin to worship those, we will miss Jesus. We will miss the bridegroom standing before us. And this is what religion tries to do. Religion will destroy and steal any joy that comes around it. That's what happened with the Pharisees. That any joy that Jesus was bringing to his disciples, and it was like a vacuum when the religious leaders got there. Not only did they miss Jesus standing before them, but think about this. They also missed in this moment what just happened to Levi, the tax collector. What just happened to Levi. He just became a disciple of Jesus. He just became a follower of Jesus, right? He was lost and now he's found. He was blind, but now he can see. Do we as a church, this is corporately, are we as a church sometimes more married to our tradition and our way of doing things than we are to the heart of God? the heart of God that longs to see men and women and children come to faith in him and celebrate those things above all else. See, what what really matters, folks? What do we really get worked up about in our lives or in the church community? What we should get most worked up about is when we see someone come to faith in Jesus, put their trust, experience the joy we say we have in him. And let me tell you, when there is a deep, deep joy in the church, it will not just run deep, but it will run wide to other people around you as well. The Pharisees were so upset because Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. They were feasting. And Jesus goes, because it's right to feast right now. But notice Jesus does say, listen, there will be a time where I go away. And they will fast when? Then. Then. In that moment, they will fast. Well, guess what, church? We are in that moment right now where Jesus is not incarnate among us. When we are is the age of the Spirit, the age of the church where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and he has given us his Holy Spirit. So is it right for us to fast or is it just, oh, it's just religious legalism? No, it's right for us to fast, but in the right way. I love what John Piper says about this fasting. He says, We have tasted Christians, we have tasted the powers of the age to come, and our new fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not tasted, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy, meaning the final arrival of joy, arrives. We must have all he promised and as much now as possible. That's what infuses our fasting now. That's what infuses our longing now as the people of God. It is this deep joy. And I love what Joel chapter 2 says. And really, this goes perfectly with where Jesus takes them with the garment or cloth. He says, And rend your hearts, not your garments. Meaning, rend or give your hearts to the Lord, not your garments. You say, that's a weird phrase. Here's what the religious leaders of the day would do. They'd rip their garments. They'd put ash on their head. They'd fast. They'd make life miserable because miserable is more spiritual, right? And so they would, they would mope around and they'd be like, look at me, how spiritual I am. Aren't I so great? Acknowledge how elite I am, right? And here Joel's going, listen, the Lord sees through that to your heart. Here's what I want from you. Render your heart to God and not your garments, Anybody can fake it on the exterior, but render the thing that no one else sees to the God who wants to change and shape you and make you new. And then here's what he says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over, does that, think about that. That's the God you will meet, not with your ripped garments, not with ash on your head, pretending to be something you're not, but when you render your heart truly to the Lord. And when you do that, here, I'm going to use Peter's words in 1 Peter, you will find joy inexpressible and full of glory. But let me tell you, the joy of Jesus cannot be contained in the religious systems of old. They cannot be, it cannot be contained in the false frameworks we so easily want to construct in our lives. Jesus goes, no, there is a new way. I am the new way. And what I'm offering you is a new joy. But Jesus isn't just offering a joy. Jesus is offering a totally new life. Let's make no mistake about it. And this is where we get into the parable with the cloth or the patch. Jesus brings not just a new joy, but he brings a new life. Verse 36, and he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the peace from the new will not match the old. Jesus does not come in and just simply patch up our already pretty good life. What Jesus offers and is extending to us is a totally revolutionary, totally new way of life. Paul puts it like this pretty good in 2 Corinthians 5. Here's what he says. You know this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what creation? A modified a a patched up, a reform. No, new. And if you don't know the definition new, here it is. The old has passed away and behold, the what? New has come. So this is what Jesus is saying. The bridegroom is here and the newness of life that I am bringing is not a reformation. It's not just a, a simple kind of reorientation. It is a whole new thing. It's a whole new way. This grace thing is going to capture you and absolutely revolutionize your life from the inside out. Here is the deal. My life, my life that was tainted by sin, stained with the entirety of sin over my whole life, it didn't just need a makeover. I didn't just need self-help or an improvement. I needed a whole new life. Ezekiel puts it like this, that the Lord, when when he transforms our life, he takes our heart of stone and puts in our life a heart of flesh. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ didn't add to Judaism or reform it. The gospel of Jesus Christ totally fulfilled it. So I want to be careful here talking about the old and the new. Because this is where people get that crazy idea that you can just unhitch from the Old Testament. Or going, hey, all we need is is, is the red letters. No, if you notice, in many of the red letters that Jesus talks about through the Gospels, he's quoting the what? The old, right? He's quoting the Old Testament. But we go to the Old Testament and we understand the Old Testament as casting shadows. That Jesus goes, now, I'm the substance. Jesus doesn't do away with it, meaning scrap it. He goes, no, I fulfill it. I actually give testimony and definition to all of those structures and frameworks. That framework is now me, Jesus says. You see, the law and the purpose of the law and the beauty of the law, as James puts it in our New Testament, he said it's a mirror that we're able to hold up and see our true selves. We're able to look in that mirror and go, I could never fulfill that. I could never fast enough. I could never beat my body enough. I could never be miserable enough to pay for the things that I have done. For some of you who maybe deal on the other side of that, you're going, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm actually pretty awesome, if I do say so myself. Got a few holes in my life, right? But that's what the patches are for. And you see in the Old Testament what our God requires, a God who is perfect and holy and righteous in every way. The only acceptable sacrifice to him is what? The only acceptable offering to him is what? Not mediocre goodness. Not 98% goodness. It's perfect holiness and righteousness. That's the only acceptable thing to a holy and righteous God. Guess what? There's only one way that was satisfied. Jesus, the bridegroom. The one who shows up here and goes, I'm here. And this bridegroom will go away. I will lay down my life for you. I will pay the payment you should have paid. You're on the hook for. And here's what Jesus says in that new life. It's not going to be a patch. It's going to be a whole new garment that I clothe you with. In Isaiah 61 and pointing ahead to Jesus, I believe it's verse 10. It says that you will be, I will be clothed with salvation. Salvation. Right? Not patched up, not stitched a new garment on an old way of living, but a whole new garment, and that is Jesus. That is the person and work of Christ that he gives to you by grace, through faith, alone. A new life. But man, how we have this tendency to go back to these inadequate patches and frameworks and systems thinking that we can make our lives right with God, thinking that we can justify ourselves. And Christ this morning is confronting us right in those spaces and places and going there is only one way for new life, me. And then lastly, with the new wine, and we're gonna be talking about uh, this a lot through the parables because they're portraits of the kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom of God a new kingdom. So what Jesus does in his coming is that he inaugurates a new kingdom, a new ethic. Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples to pray, right, pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we know what that looks like How do we know what Jesus means when he says that? What what possibly could that look like? The parables will show us what the kind of kingdom Jesus is inaugurating looks like. These are the ethics. This is the heart. This is the nature of it. But Jesus here in this parable warns that this is an explosive new kingdom. A new kingdom that will not be able to be housed in old frameworks, and in structures, in adequate patches. It cannot be housed in the old, brittle ways of the old wineskins. Now notice, Jesus didn't go, hey, don't put new wine in the old wineskins. We have some new metal containers. We got some glass bottles for you to put the new wine in. What does he say? That the new wine needs new wineskins. So the way and the housing of the wine, if you will, has stayed the same. But it's not old, it's new. Why would he emphasize the new on the wineskin? Because here's the reality of a new wineskin. It allows the new wine that's placed in it when it ferments to what? Grow and stretch. If you try to pour new wine in an old wineskin, that old wineskin by definition is old because it's frail, it's brittle, and you drop something that is expanding in it, what happens? The wine is ruined, it's on the ground, and the wineskin itself is destroyed. And so one of the things that Jesus is highlighting here is about his kingdom, that he wants you to understand the new nature of it is that it is expanding and it is growing. And the place where it is housed must be able to understand and grasp how it is growing. You see with the, the, the Pharisees how they were pushing against Jesus when he healed the leper, when he healed the paralytic and said, your sins are forgiven. You see how they're pushing against Jesus and the expanding of his kingdom when he went to Levi and when he's sitting with tax collectors and sinners, they're going, Put, get, get that out of here. They're trying to stuff him into this old wineskin. and goes, no, you have to understand. Jesus is going, listen, my kingdom is expanding. It's growing. It's going to the unclean sinners by which we're all a part of. And Jesus even doubles down again where he goes, it's going to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. That's the expanding nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus is inaugurating In verse 39, very last verse of this section, Jesus, to sum up this, actually uses a a rabbinic phrase here. He says, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, The old is good. You see, when we have been exposed to the new wine of Christ, when our hearts and our minds are, grasp when we have ears to hear about Jesus and the great the gospel of grace no one goes yeah give me give, give me the structures of old yeah give, give me the animal sacrifices again give, give, give me the fasting give me, give me the external uh, aesthetics so that I can please. no no you hear that in your heart in your mind explode with love and with joy and go I want that water I want that wine give me that wine You say, Kyle, well, what causes people to stay married to these old structures and these old ways and these traditions and these habits, right? What is it? Well, I can tell you what it was for my heart. I could control those. I could fast twice a week. I could render my garments. I could control what I did or what I didn't do. But the gospel of grace says this, lay your whole life down as a vessel, give your whole life as a new wineskin, so that the new wine might be poured into it, and the grace and mercy and joy of God in His kingdom might expand in and through you. Don't you dare try to pour in the new gospel of grace in an old, brittle, stale way of living and way of life that will crumble under the weight of grace. But God, why do we do that? we love control. And Jesus this morning through this parable, he's standing before us as he was standing before his disciples and he would go, listen, the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom has come and he has given you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who gives us eyes and ears to receive the word of God. The Holy Spirit who creates in us and gives us a new heart, the deposit of our salvation so that we might live and love Jesus as the word of God tells us that is when we are. However, Jesus will not be shared with the rest of your life. Jesus will not be an inadequate, Jesus will not be a patch on your already kind of nice, fancy suburban life. He will be the whole new garment for you or nothing for you. That's what this parable is saying. And so we're going to take communion this morning. In this moment of communion, if you're new with us, this is also a moment where we reflect and we listen and we respond to the Holy Spirit. Where we quiet our minds and our hearts before the Lord to say, Speak your word to us. Now hear me, I was careful this morning not to give you a real long list of inadequate patches or or, or or false frameworks that you might be building your life and trying to add Jesus to. I was careful with that. Because I think often what happens is when we give you, when a teacher gives you a list, you go through the list and you go, Don't do it. Good there, good there, good there. You're like, I'm good and we don't allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate the things that he wants to illuminate in your life and in my life. And so in this moment, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, show me, show me those things that I am patching on to my life. Lord, that you have, you've told me you'll give me a new garment, a whole new life. What are the structures and the frameworks I have made idols, made the cornerstone of my life? And Jesus is waking us up to the beauty of who he is new wine that can only be held in a new wine skin. And so let me pray for us hosts, if you'd get ready. Father, we are your people gathered for one reason, and that is to glorify you. And Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word this morning. And Lord, and not just hearing, you would give us faith to respond to it, God, that you would give us a greater imagination of your kingdom, the joy of your kingdom, the new life of your kingdom, the expanding nature of your kingdom to save sinners like me. So, Lord, I pray as we respond to you in these moments that you would speak with precise clarity through your word. You would help us to discern what is our voice and what is yours. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.